All right, well, turn once again to 1 Thessalonians. Um, we're going to be at chapter 4 today. Um, over the last several sermons, you may have noticed that our, I framed our discussions uh, around the right kind of things. So we talked about the right kind of pride, uh, of which I believe there is, and the right kind of worry. Again, I think there is such a thing. Uh, and then we talked about the right kind of faith and the right kind of prayer. Now, I just kind of mentioned the first two in passing, but the second two uh, received uh, entire sermons, in fact. So when it concerns the right kind of prayer, uh, we discovered that it is prayer that is to the Father and also to the Son, prayer that is offered in obedience, uh, prayer for God's direction and for God's work in our lives, and prayer that is according to the will of God. Then in the the few sermons before that, um, we talked about the right kind of faith, which is faith that is resolved, faith that is ready to be tested, and faith that is strengthened, faith that is observable, faith that is immovable, and faith that is humble. If you recall, I made abundantly clear uh, two sermons in a row when talking about the right kind of faith that I was addressing issues related to living by faith. You see, I wanted to be sure and continue to want to be sure that you understand that we are justified by faith alone. Um, and the, the, the strength or amount of our faith at any given time plays no part in our right standing before God. Now that said, while we are justified by faith alone, faith that saves is never alone, which means that we who have been saved by faith must also live by faith. So today, we are going to begin a, a few sermons which will address what living by faith is all about, which is to say now that we've talked about the right kind of faith and the right kind of prayer, we are going to begin to talk about the right kind of living. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, uh, Paul then has been uh, spending a, a good majority of his letter thus far doing three things. He has been talking about his gratitude for the Thessalonians. Uh, he's been talking about his ministry among the Thessalonians. And he's been talking about his desire to be with the Thessalonians because of his love for them, something that he has, in fact, uh, prayed about, uh, something that he intends to encourage them uh, concerning. Now, today we are entering into the second part of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica. Um, it's not, uh, uh, of course, half and half. It's not divided evenly. Uh, but at ch in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins a new section, what we could call the instruction section. 
And here we're going to learn about the right kind of living in light of the return of Christ. This is what I would, uh, if I had to come up with the title for chapter 4 and 5, it would be the right kind of living in light of the return of Christ. Now, a lot of Christians think that eschatology doesn't matter. Uh, And if you don't know what the word eschatology means, then you are in fact one of those Christians. Uh, Eschatology uh, is the study of end times. And as I said, many people think it's really not that important, but it, it really is. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to understand every intricate detail uh, concerning the millennium and the return of Christ, but it does mean that you should seek to understand what you can about end times because uh, it really does impact the way you live. What you believe about the end times, in fact, impacts the way you live. And if you don't have any understanding of the end of times, then that also will impact the way you live and not at all in a good way. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I know nothing about end times, well, we can remedy that. And I hope to remedy that as we continue through this section where we find instructions about right living in in light of the return of Christ. Now, as we get into our text, Paul indicates this shift in this letter uh, in, 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 uh, from uh, the first part to this part on instruction with this word that the ESV translates as finally. Now, one commentator and one translation uh, uh, suggests that it should probably be translated as beyond that or beyond what I have already written or as the CSB says, additionally, right? And I don't know, maybe they're trying to combat this whole idea of pastors who say in conclusion and then talk for another 30 minutes. Um, Maybe that's what they see happening here. I I think that's probably, uh, you know, it might be helpful to say additionally or or something like that because he does still have two chapters of things to say. He does still have a fair bit left to say. Uh, But he's indicating now that there's a change in in subject matter. He's now going into his instruction section. And this all concerns the right kind of living. Or as Paul puts it in in verse 1, he says, Brothers, we ask... And urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Uh, For me, when I read through uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians, it it, kind of um, provides a real contrast between that letter and his letter to the Corinthians, right? For example, like I would title his letter to the Corinthians as a letter of rebuke. Uh, but his, his letter to the Thessalonians, I would title a letter of encouragement, a letter of encouragement. He wants the, 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 the Thessalonians to be encouraged in their walk with God. And he says to you, you guys are doing a really great job, but I want to encourage you to keep at it more and more. And, and Paul knows that the Thessalonians know how they should be living because he says to them in verse two, he says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So for the Thessalonians, what they had was the instruction that Paul had taught them in person. And what he's doing here is he's reminding them of what he had taught them. Now, for us, of course, uh, the instructions that we have through the Lord Jesus is the entire Bible. All of the Bible is the, 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 the words that we have received from, from Jesus. You may have seen some Christians highlight the red letters, right, in Bibles that have the letters of Jesus in red. I don't particularly think that's especially helpful because the entire Bible is in the Lord. These are the words that we have received in the Lord Jesus. One part is no, uh, no different than the rest. It is all the word of God. Now, 
what I want you to consider here uh, is that Paul says to them, uh, I, I'm reminding you about the things that I've already taught you. Um, and if what we have is the word of God, uh, then my job is to uh, remind you of what God has said. This then, I think, should keep us from rushing through a text or checking out during a Bible study or sermon because I know this already, right? Oh, here's the part. Oh, I know this already. I don't need to pay attention. Um, Paul knew that the Thessalonians knew what he had taught them, but he reminds them of it anyway. And I know that so much of what I teach, many of you already know. I know uh, that you know that you should pursue holiness, It's no surprise to me that that you all know that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Um, It doesn't doesn't surprise me in the slightest that you know that you should not sin against others. But that's not going to keep me from teaching about those things today because this is what we find in our text for uh, this morning. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at sanctification. Uh, We're going to look at sexual immorality and we're going to look at sinning against uh, others. And I mean, the whole conversation is a conversation around sanctification, um, but we'll we'll, we'll, uh, narrow in on sanctification in the first section, and then we'll kind of expand upon that, which is what Paul did. So let's get into this. The first subject we learned about, as I said, is sanctification, something that we have discussed over the past few weeks. Uh, And in particular, last week, we talked about perfect sanctification. This was the emphasis last week when we learned that we will be made perfectly holy when Jesus returns or calls us home. It won't happen in this life, but it will happen when Jesus calls us home or when he returns. Now, this week, the focus is now on progressive sanctification. There's three kinds of sanctification. There's positional sanctification. That's what happens when you first get saved, and and God sets you apart as now a sanctified person, set apart for God's worship. There's perfect sanctification, which will happen uh, when Christ returns or calls you home, and you will be made perfectly sanctified. And then there's progressive sanctification, which takes place all throughout your life. And the focus today of this text is progressive sanctification, which is to say becoming more holy in this life. And Paul, in fact, describes in his second letter to the Corinthians sanctification as this, being transformed into the image of the Lord, being transformed into the image of the Lord. Now, uh, last week I made clear who sanctifies us, something which Paul makes clear again in his second letter to the Corinthians. After telling them what sanctification is, transformation, he then says, this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All of this is to say that God sanctifies us. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We do not sanctify ourselves. It is God who makes us holy. It's God who makes us more like Jesus. It's God who transforms us into his image more and more each day. And he does this, of course, through his indwelling and empowering spirit. Now, to be sure then, the work of sanctifying belongs to God. The work of sanctifying belongs to God, but the pursuit of sanctification belongs to us. The work of sanctification belongs to God. The pursuit of sanctification belongs to us. That is our responsibility to pursue holiness, to strive for sanctification, to seek transformation. Now, the question that we all ought to be wondering is, how do we do this? This is a high calling. It's a serious situation. This is not something to be trifled with. We are to seek sanctification. So how do we do it? Well, 
It is not as tough as you might think, or not tough to understand anyway. It is tough to do sometimes. But if we want to become more holy, if we want to become more progressively sanctified, if the goal of our life is transformation, then what we need to do is obey. Obey God's commands. That's not hard to understand. It's not a hard concept to grasp. It's hard to do sometimes. But if we want to be sanctified, then what we need to do is obey. The word translated as instructions is probably more accurately to be translated as commands, which is uh, reflected in the CSB and the NASB and the NKJV. And given through the Lord Jesus might be better understood as by the authority of the Lord Jesus, which we see in the NASB and the NIV. You see, the Apostle Paul, along with the other apostles, they had been sent directly by Jesus to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them all that God commanded. So if all authority belongs to Jesus, which if you look at Matthew 28, 18, it in fact does have Jesus saying, all authority belongs to me. So then go, if all authority belongs to him, then when The apostles went and they taught. They went and they taught with the authority of the Lord Jesus. So when Paul delivers commands to the Thessalonians, they were commands of the Lord, which meant that those commands were given to be obeyed. Now, uh, unlike the Thessalonians, as mentioned, we have much more than just what Paul taught them when he was there, because as already mentioned, we have the whole Bible. And the Bible is full of commands to obey. It is full of principles for us to apply. It is full of examples for us to follow. And if we want to become more like Jesus, if we want to be more holy, if we want to be sanctified, then it's really simple. Obey God's commands. It's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It is simple. If you want to be sanctified, study the word of God then do what it says. That's the right kind of living. That's what living by faith is. It's pursuing sanctification by obeying God's commands. Now you say, why is this so necessary? Why do I have to pursue sanctification? You know, I'm happy with justification. I'm happy being right in the sight of God. I think I'd like to just live the way I want to live. It's this kind of idea that we can collect our get out of hell free card and just go right back to living for ourselves. I mean, we all know lots of people who identify as Christians. Um, Maybe they walked the aisle or they filled out a card uh, or they made a profession of faith at some kind of evangelism event, maybe as a child or as an adult, and then nothing changes. They just keep on living to please themselves. I will never forget this one time. uh, A woman told me of her brother who had trusted, her words, who had trusted in Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You know, that's not in fact possible. Uh, it, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, this, this woman was uh, uh, confused in thinking that a person could be justified and not sanctified. You see, as Paul tells the Thessalonians in in verse 3 of our text, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What this means is that the will of God is not some mysterious and unknown thing which God has left you to try to figure out. That is God's will for your life. Obey him and become more holy. Now, 
I think when Christians think about the will of God for their lives, they rarely think of anything so ordinary and mundane as daily faithfulness in your life. They think that God appearing to them in a dream and calling them to become a missionary and move to Africa, that's the kind of seeking of God's will people are looking for. Or, or they think about God sending them a vision where he tells them to write a book, get Christian Twitter famous, and then go on a speaking tour all around North America. But you need neither dreams nor visions to know the will of God for your life. God has made crystal clear what his will is for your life, and it is your sanctification. Too many people make knowing the will of God for your life far too complicated but it really doesn't need to be. God is not some kind of capricious overlord who knows all the specifics of your life and is sitting up in heaven thinking, "Mm, let's see if they can figure it out. That is not the kind of God that we worship. That is not what God is like. Now, yes, God does know all of the specifics of your life down to every breath and every word and every thought and every step. He knows it all. But he has not revealed it to you, and he doesn't expect you to try to figure it out. Instead, he reveals for you clearly in his word what he expects from you. There is no secret to a successful Christian life. If anybody says, let me tell you the secret, tell them, I don't want to hear it. There is no secret, because it's not a secret. It's it's clearly revealed. And it's boldly proclaimed all throughout the pages of Scripture, everywhere Every time you see the scripture, it says, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. You've got this example, you've got this principle to apply. All of that is God's way of revealing to us what he intends for us to do. And it is simply summarized as sanctification. And if you want to be sanctified, then you must obey his commands, which means you must know his commands, and then live with a heart and mind to please him. And as Kevin DeYoung is famous for saying, then just do something. Just do something. Seek to know his word, obey his commands, and then do something. In other words, if you want to live in the center of God's will, which I I know, that's one of those phrases we throw around Christianity. I just want to live in the center of God's will. I mean, I think I know what they're saying. They're saying they want to live in the will of God. Um, Then obey God. That's it. It is that simple. Obey him. He wants you to be sanctified. He says this clearly. So then what that means is that you should pursue holiness, whether here or there, whether in the workplace or in the home, whether as a professional or in a trade, whether in marriage or single, whether young or old, just seek to know God's word and then obey it. That is living by faith. That's the right kind of living. Now, uh, as Paul addresses the Thessalonians and their sanctification, there's a particular area of life that he applies it to, namely sex. Um, This is obviously an area where the Thessalonians faced a great deal of temptation, uh, and it likewise is an area where we face a great deal of temptation. If you think that sexual temptation is a new thing and something that's really gone rampant since the invention of the internet, think again. It has always been a problem. It was a problem here for the Thessalonians, and so Paul does not make this complicated. He simply calls them to obedience in this area, Uh, as he says that God's will is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word translated as sexual immorality in Greek is porneia. Uh, Surely you hear uh, what what word is in that word. 
That's where we obviously get the word pornography. Um, and this is clearly a prohibition against involvement uh, in pornography in any kind of way, whether it's in print or in video or live. It, 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 it condemns uh, all pornography flat out and involvement in it 100%. But this is not just a prohibition against pornography. It is much more. If you look at the lexicon, uh, uh, pornea is defined as various kinds of unsanctioned sexual intercourse, unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, fornication. So basically, we could summarize uh, what Paul forbids here, which is to say what God forbids, is anything outside of heterosexual sex within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. This would be sexual immorality. Anything outside of heterosexual sex within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, provides a more extensive summary in its explanation of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This is what it says, and I think this is helpful. The seventh commandment requires us to be sexually pure in body, mind, inclinations, words, and actions and to maintain that purity in ourselves and others. We are to monitor what we look at, as well as what we experience with our other senses, and we are to live temperately, keeping pure company and dressing modestly. Those who cannot control their sexual desires should marry, loving and living together with their spouses. We should also work hard at whatever we are called to do, avoiding all opportunities for indecency and resisting any temptation to say, think, or do anything indecent or obscene. So, so then, now that we know what we are to pursue uh, and what we are to abstain from when it concerns sex, let's concern how to do it. And the first thing we need to notice is the word that Paul uses. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. Now, once again, back to the lexicon, we find that this can also be translated to keep away from. So when it comes to sexual immorality, or any sin for that matter, we must keep away from it. Uh, we must stay away from it. Uh, we must avoid it at all costs. It's like Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And if you look at the context of that statement, it in fact is sexual immorality, both physical and mental. For Jesus speaks of adultery and lustful looks, what he calls adultery of the heart. So what this means is that while engaging in acts of sexual immorality is sin, the desire to engage in acts of sexual immorality is also sin. So while we quite often want to know what can we do to get as close to sin without in fact engaging in it, in reality what we are commanded to do is to keep as far away from it as possible. Sexual sin and all sin. And what that means if we want to do that is that we will need self-control. Because sometimes we can't help but be exposed to sexual temptation. And so after Paul tells the Thessalonians to abstain, he then tells them that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
the fact of the matter is that like the Thessalonians, we live in a world where sexual immorality is the rule of the day. In fact, our sexuality is what defines us in our society. It is what the focus of everything is supposed to be on, we are told. And it, sexual immorality is not only promoted, but it is celebrated with parades and on crosswalks in every form of media and sadly even in the laws written by our government. This means that we must always be on guard. We can never let our guard down when it concerns the influence of the world. And we must reject the world's mantra, that is, those who do not know God, which is, if it feels good, do it. In opposition to the world's mantra, our mantra as the people of God is to control your body, be self-controlled. And if you think it is hard to exercise self-control, you are right. It is hard, but take heart, because it is, in fact, a fruit of the Spirit, which is to say the Spirit provides us with the power to exercise self-control. So then what we must do is rely on the power of the Spirit in our lives, and then we must control our bodies, control our eyes, which is to say control what we look at, control our mouths, which is to say control what we say or type. We must control our hands and our feet, which is to say we must be in control of what we do and where we go. And we must even be in control of our hearts and our minds, which is to say we must be in control of our thoughts and we must be in control of our emotions and we must be in control of our desires and we must even be in control of our attitudes. I know that one hurts. Self-control is a virtue that the church sadly often overlooks. But it is a virtue that is crucial for spirit-filled Christian living, particularly when it comes to resisting sexual immorality. The fact matters is that sexual temptation is everywhere. It's on billboards. It's at the mall. It's at the beach. It's on our TVs. It's on our computers. It's in our pockets on our phones. So practicing self-control in this area is especially challenging, but absolutely essential for the right kind of living. But let us not relegate self-control to a virtue also only necessary when it concerns sexual immorality. Self-control is necessary in all of life all of life. So when it comes to the programs we choose to watch, we need self-control. And when it comes to the websites we choose to visit or even to search for or what social media we choose to take part in, we need self-control. When it comes to what music we choose to listen to, we need self-control. When it comes to what books we choose to read, we need self-control. When it comes to what we eat and drink, we need self-control. When it comes to how we choose to speak, we need self-control. When it comes to choosing our friends, we need self-control. When it comes to how we spend our money, we need self-control. When it comes to what we choose to think about, we need self-control. When it comes to what we choose to do with our time, we need self-control. There is no area of our life where we do not need self-control. So do whatever is necessary to restrain yourself, to stay away from all sin, including sexual sin. Keep away from it. Abstain from it because that 
is the right kind of living. Now, the last thing which Paul addresses uh, is uh, sinning against others, and um, especially still within the context of sexual sin. So what Paul tells the Thessalonians uh, after telling them to abstain from sexual immorality and exercise self-control in verse 6, he says that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter. Now, there are some very clear examples of how this would happen within the context of sexual immorality, how you would sin against someone. I mean, if you commit adultery, then you sin against the person who you commit adultery with, and you sin against their spouse. Uh, If you engage in premarital sex, then you sin against the person that you do so with. If you sleep with a prostitute, you're sinning against the prostitute. And if you're married, then you're also sinning against your spouse. If you watch pornography, you're supporting the people who are engaging in it. And if you're married, you're sinning against your spouse. Now, I could go on. uh, But in reality, what we need to recognize here is that whenever you sin sexually or whenever you sin at all, you sin against others because your sin never just affects you. Uh, I, I refer you to uh, the sin of Achan at Ai in Joshua chapter 7. You can look at that yourself this afternoon if you like. Achan thinks that he can steal some things and he'll just hide those things in his tent and nobody will be the wiser. Uh, but of course, God is the wiser. And, uh, and in fact, Israel loses in battle because of Achan's sin, the sin that he thought would only influence himself, something which certainly teaches us that sin always affects others. Furthermore, when you become a member of this church, you covenant together with the church. That is, you make a promise together with the rest of the church. And as part of that covenant, you promise this. To engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk cautiously in the world, to be just in your dealings, faithful in your engagements, and an example in your behavior. And here it is, folks to abstain from every kind of evil and be zealous in your efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. So then, every time you sin, you violate this covenant that you have agreed to, which is to say you sin against the entire church. You do something that you said that you wouldn't do. This is why it is so important that as a church, we help one another when it concerns the area of temptation and and sin. Um, In fact, at men's group this week, we're going to be talking about two subjects, resisting temptation and accountability. Uh, We have one another for a reason, and we need to help hold one another accountable. That is one of the things you agree to when you become a member of this church, to be held accountable. That's why when, when, when church discipline comes up... If you're guilty, you ought to be glad for church discipline. It is for your good and the good of the entire, the entire church. You see, to sin against others is serious business. But the reason it's serious business is to sin against others is first to sin against God something we learned from David after he committed adultery and murder and then prayed this. Against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, to be sure, I don't think that David didn't know that he had sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah. I believe that he knew this. But he also knew that any sin against another was first and foremost a sin against God. And that is what makes sin so serious. Who it is that you sin against. I mean, just think about that, right? Clearly, the children here know that, you know, if they sin against their brother or sister or against a friend, uh, you know, then, then the, the consequences are not as bad as they sin against their parents, right? Or, or, or you think about, uh, you know, maybe you, you sin against your spouse. That's bad. But what if you sin against a police officer? That's worse. And then if you sin against a Supreme Court judge, that's even worse. Like, you see, it depends on who you sin against. And is there anyone higher and more exalted and more righteous and more just and who has more authority and sovereignty than God? Uh, Of course not. This is what makes sin so bad, is that sin is against God, and God will not abide sin against himself. He will not. After telling the Thessalonians to not sin against one another, Paul then adds, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So then there there are various degrees of sin, right? Uh, The scripture makes this clear. But in one sense, there are no small sins because all sins are against a holy God. And God is an avenger of wrongdoing. Now, what this means for us is twofold. If you're feeling kind of knocked down, that's all right. But just hold, hold with me here. Uh, this means two things. The first thing it means is that if we hope to escape the vengeance of God, the way that we live must be pleasing to God. Let me explain that. If we hope to escape the vengeance of God, the way we live must be pleasing to God, which means that we ought to be on guard against sinning sexually and sinning against others. But I cannot emphasize this enough. It is not our obedience which saves us. Instead, we are saved, so we live in obedience, which means that if we are not living in obedience, then we have no reason to think that we are saved. You you see what I'm saying here? It's not our obedience that makes us escape God's vengeance. It's our justification. But if we are, in fact, justified and righteous before God, then we will be obedient. So the first thing that this means is that if we are justified by faith, then we will live by faith. And if we're justified by faith and we live by faith, then we will escape the vengeance of God on the last day when Jesus comes to judge the quick and the dead. Now, (laughs) this of course does not mean that we never sin sexually or against others. When I was talking about that church covenant and I said we covenant to abstain from every kind of evil, and I don't want you to be thinking here, man, I have not abstained from every kind of evil. None of us have, right? This is why we renew the covenant from time to time, right? We, we do sin sometimes, and, and we sin sexually, and we sin against others, which leads to the second thing this means, which is that when we do sin in either of these two ways, or in any way, we must confess that sin, and we must repent of that sin, and we must call upon God for mercy. And the good news is that while God will pour out his vengeance on all who remain in their sins and do not trust in him, for those of us who do trust in him and turn from our sins, his mercy is infinite and will never run out. Which brings us to the end of our text, but not the end of the sermon. Closer to the end of the sermon, but we've got two more verses to deal with. We're going to begin where, uh, we're going to end where we began. 
Um, we've been talking so far about the issue of sanctification. This has really framed our entire discussion this morning. And Paul ties up this section with two more reasons why sanctification is what should mark our lives as the people of God. So he told us to pursue holiness. And then he told us to abstain from sexual immorality by exercising self-control. And then he told us not to sin against others. Now, if you recall, he began by telling us that we should do all of that because it is the will of God, which is reason enough, right? If Paul says the will of God is, is your sanctification, then hey, we should be like, great. That's really all we need. But he wraps things up here. He ties up this conversation um, by encouraging us with two other reasons why we should be busy about the right kind of living. Two more reasons. And the first of those two reasons is found in verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now, I, I like that. Listen to that again. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I like that. I, I like the way that Paul says that because it kind of kicks you in the face a little bit. Because he says to us, God didn't call us to a life of impurity, which I kind of feel like responding with, duh. Like, isn't that kind of obvious? I mean, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, then you know that you have not been called to impurity, which is why I, I think it's kind of a kick in the face because your response to that statement which should, should be, well, of course it is. <laughs> you see where I'm going here, which begs the question, then why do you do things that are impure? Right? Like, like the idea is, is, is to kind of, uh, and I know I use this example all the time, it's kind of to evoke within you the same kind of response that you would get if you walked up to a cow and it went, or if you walked up to a cat and it went, woof. Right? You'd be like, cats don't go woof. Exactly. So you do something sinful and you should be thinking, Cats don't go woof. Christians don't do impure things. That's not, that's not what we were called to. That's not what we are about. In some respects, it should feel very unnatural to sin. Now, prior to uh, salvation, right? That's all you knew. That's all, all, all you could do. That was the most natural thing in the world because that's, that's what your nature was. You had a sinful nature and that's all you did. It should be the most natural thing in the world. We should not be surprised in any way, shape, or form when the world engages in all kinds of sin. That's what they do. Cats go meow. Right? But Christians don't do that. That's not the way that we live. And so every time that you give in to that temptation every time you sin, I want you to think about how unnatural that should feel. Because now God has enabled us to do that which pleases him. Right? Prior to salvation, we had no ability to please God. Now he's enabled us to please him. And so when we don't please him, we should think, man, that's not right. He called us to a life of holiness. And if you have answered the call to trust in him, then you have answered the call to holiness. If you've trusted in him as Savior, then you've trusted in him as Lord. That's the way it works. So when we find ourselves engaging in impure acts, uh, it should not seem natural to us, not even in the least. And if we are focused on living a life of holiness, and if we are engaged in the right kind of living day by day, when we sin, we will step back and go, 
what was that? Not like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the way it goes. No, man. We need to take sin seriously because that's what we are called to. And if that's the case, then when we see sin in our life, we will repent of it and we'll get right back to the right kind of living. Which brings us to one last reason we should be all about pursuing holiness. One last reason Paul gives us in verse 8. Uh, he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. <laughs> so don't be like, man, <laughs> what's Sean got to say? I don't got to listen to him. This ain't about me. This is about God. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, God has given his Holy Spirit to us to empower and enable us to resist temptation. So, when we don't re resist temptation, you know what we're doing? We're looking at the Holy Spirit and we're going, nah, I don't need you. I don't want that pure power that you've got to offer me. I don't want to be enabled to please God. You are disregarding God. You are ignoring the power of the Holy Spirit to control your bodies, to abstain from sexual immorality, to avoid sinning against others. That's what happens when you choose to sin. You disregard God and you refuse to rely on the power of the Spirit, which he so graciously gave to you. So there is no good reason for us to sin and instead every reason for us to choose sanctification, which is to say to be all about the right kind of living because that is God's will for our lives. It's what he called us to do and it is what he empowered us for by his Spirit. Let's pray.